Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. My name is Dr. Casey Patrick, and we have our regular guest, Medical Director Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. Good afternoon, everyone. We're coming at you with another Monday morning quarterback episode. This one is mine, so I guess I'll be the hot seat. You can be the coach, I guess. Just opine on your case, Dr. Patrick. And these were a couple cases that I had recently here in the district uh, with some of our MCHD medics that one of them I'm going to brag on. The other one really brings to light some of the system changes that we've made over the last probably decade here in the county and really brings real world thought and real world application of some of the concepts that we, we've talked about a lot. So it's a little bit vague. I don't want to give away the cases. Uh, the first one was just, I wanted to bring it on because it was a, just a perfect distillation of one of our pet topic, uh, one of the things that we've implemented, researched, studied, taught, monitored, and really feel strongly about as a disease process that has definite room for improvement. And this was a, a young patient that was at home with his family and collapsed in sudden cardiac arrest. And thankfully, bystander CPR was initiated through our alarm staff check. Uh, our fire partners arrived and applied an AED and began defibrillation check. Our EMS crew arrived and started high quality pit crew CPR, mechanical CPR, airway management, ACLS in place, and we continued to shock this patient. So where are we now? Persistent VF. Yeah, we're in the refractory VF world. And this is a group of patients that we've talked about here in relation to Esmolol. We've talked just currently in CE about our approach to these patients and how that relates to the dose DF trial that was released late in 2022 in uh, the New England Journal from Toronto and Dr. Chesky's. And our medics did exactly that. They they Continued defibrillations, uh, standard ACLS, epinephrine. We limit our epinephrine here at MCHD to two doses, amiodarone, esmolol, double sequential defibrillation. And on about shock seven or eight, uh, with I think three or four of those being uh, double sequential, they ended up getting return of spontaneous circulation. And so I was lucky enough to receive this patient in the emergency department uh, here in the area and take care of this gentleman. And my part was pretty easy. We had, yeah, it we, sounds like they did all the work we, already. We had we had Ross all, all done, and the EKG was consistent with ST elevation MI. Uh, cardiology was involved and activated, and the patient went to the cath lab and received PCI and revascularization, and just a really amazing end to the story. About a week later, discharged home with no limitations, no rehab, no walker, no nothing. Went home to to go back home and be healthy. That's one of the really good ones, Casey. And these could be super heartbreaking. We've all seen these in our our line of work is these are people that are really too young to die and they have some pesky occlusion and it irritates their ventricle and they just have this recurrent persistent ventricular fibrillation that we cannot shock them out of many times until we get the vascular occlusion cleared or deploy multiple, multiple modalities really of attacking this thing. 
with the new anterior posterior pad placement, double vector, as Dr. Patrick said, uh, esmolol, other adjuncts that we've used here. And, and still, we still have some that are heart, these are heartbreaking when you get them in and ultimately what happens with them? They, you code them and code them. And if it doesn't work and you can't clear their occlusion and you don't have ECMO or you don't have a, a cardiology staff that will take them and, and give them a go of uh, clearing their occlusion into arrest, they eventually degenerate to asystole and, uh, and sadly, you know, without those therapies. So this, this is one of the really good ones. And it's worth mentioning as someone who has not been a lifelong EMS emergency physician, this is a group of patients that honestly I didn't know existed to the extent at which they do. And I've heard other emergency physicians who aren't EMS centric say the same thing. Well, we just don't see that many of these refractory VF cases. And now that our paradigm has shifted from transporting all cardiac arrests, which we did in EMS 20 years ago, hopefully... Hopefully your service is not doing that now. We're applying pit crew CPR and high-quality CPR and resuscitation steps on scene, and we're not rapidly transporting these folks. Then we're working through that refractory VF in the house, in the garage, in the apartment. And so what happens? Shock, 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 shock number 10, 12, 14. And like Dr. Dixon said, now we're asystole, and that call does not get to the ER. Why? Because the, it, it ends up being field terminated. It doesn't mean it wasn't a refractory VF. We've moved away from transporting these folks. So I, I don't think that the average emergency physician who's non-EMS centric sees these quite as much as we do reviewing charts. And when I started here at MCHD, this was a group of patients that I honestly didn't know existed. And medics would come into my office and say, doc, we had this you know, 51 year old at the YMCA that was on the treadmill and went down and we shocked him 14 times and finally PEA to asystole. And this was a group, and this is where the, the idea and the push for our Esmolol study came from. My personal belief that these patients, we can do better for them, came from looking at those charts and saying, man, this was a salvageable patient if we could just get them to revascularization. And that's where Dose DF comes in. We'll post a link to that study in the show notes. We've talked about it all week this yeah. week in CE. See, happy EMS week, everyone. Happy EMS week. Be released at a later date, but we're recording during EMS week. And I don't want to go into a Dose DF discussion of the details. A lot of very smart people who are smarter than me have given their take on Dose DF. First of all, it was amazing work to do a randomized prospective trial of refractory VF patients and look at AP pad, AP pad placement and dual sequential defibrillation is amazing. Just, I mean, lifted a mountain to get it done, especially through COVID, or at least up into COVID time period is even more amazing. And whether or not you have issues with the devils that are in the details there, pretty amazing and encouraging amount of improvement with just moving your pad placement from anterolateral to anterior posterior so if you're listening out there and you're in a service who's still primarily doing al pad placement switch it to ap it's, it's free of charge it makes total sense that's what we're doing here in the system and if you have a second monitor available it makes little sense to me at this point to not be at shock six or seven when it is available, whether that's on a fly car, 
uh, on a district chief vehicle like we have here at MCHD or on a second ambulance, whatever your logistical and operational uh, challenges are, if you have that second monitor available to not move to double sequential or dual sequential defibrillation as soon as you can, it just, I can't see a reason not to do it. So for us, this, this patient was all of that. It was Esmolol, it was dual sequential, it was good pit crew CPR, bystander CPR, um, AED use by our fire crew, just a culmination of what these patients need and actually one of those really good outcomes that sadly doesn't happen enough in these patients. So hopefully we'll have our save reunion scheduled with this patient and our crews get to uh, shake his hand and really see the the fruits of their labor because these are ones that help get us through the ones that don't go the way we want them to. Yeah, great case. The second one is one that also reflects changing paradigm in emergency care. And this is, this is we talked about Esmolol, that's in a sense my baby. This one is more in Dr. Dixon's realm. And this was my primary patient as well. Um, the first one I was present, but wasn't mine primarily. So I won't, I won't take a ton of credit there. This patient was mine and I'm thankful for my involvement here at MCHD and I'll get to why because honestly it's made me a better clinician in the emergency department and this was a patient that was brought into the emergency department and he had been seen by two EMS crews prior to landing in my lap and so there was a bit of telephone in that I was getting a report from a report from a report uh, but what I received was an elderly gentleman who had abrupt onset of altermentation at home, and the primary EMS crew arrived, found him abruptly altered, not protecting his airway, and sedated and intubated the patient. And then he was transferred to a second EMS crew, then to me. So I didn't have a whole lot of information. It was all second and third hand. He was obviously not giving me any history. The family was not there yet, so I didn't have any family history. I just had an elderly gentleman who had abrupt altermental status and, for better or worse, landed in my lap. And I didn't have a whole lot of a whole lot of additional info. So I went back to serial killers. Serial killers, altermental status. His sugar was 160. Okay. He had been paralyzed and sedated and intubated, but it was a long-acting, short-acting. Yeah, it was a, a succinylcholine. So at okay. that point, I was fairly confident that he wasn't paralyzed anymore. The medics were pretty clear from their report that they had gotten that he was moving all of his extremities prior to intubation. That was one question I asked a couple times to try to clarify: Was he moving all his extremities? Because you're thinking. Could be a stroke, could be an ischemic stroke. Was there anything unilateral about yeah. his presentation? And, and repeatedly in different ways, that answer was no. I looked for gaze preference for seizure to see if there was any mm -hmm. seizure activity, anything that I could glean from looking at his eyes and his pupils were reactive. His pupils were midline. I had a report of all extremities moving. There was no facial droop. So I thought, well, it doesn't really sound like full-on stroke. It could be, but this sounds like abrupt altermental status. And the abrupt part was still key the abrupt, here. Yeah, the abrupt gets you thinking, doesn't yep. it? It's, it's vascular, vascular, vascular. Now, he had been in the hospital recently and had some urinary tract infection issues. So sepsis and infection was probably number one on my list. But he wasn't febrile. He wasn't tachycardic. He wasn't hypotensive. 
and I had him do a, a core temperature, make sure his rectal temp was normal, and it was. Um, and then toxins, there was no report of toxins. There was nothing that you know looked like toxidrome. He didn't have an op- opiate toxidrome. He didn't have a sympathomimetic toxidrome. There was no report of withdrawal. You know, I asked about all those things, and it was all secondhand, thirdhand negative. So I thought, well, this has got to be. It's got to be sepsis. This is an old guy that was in the hospital for urinary tract infection, and he's progressed to bacteremia, or he's got an intra-abdominal abscess, or there's there's something there that's that's going on. But I still had in the back of my mind, this guy, from the report, was normal. And, and then, then he wasn't. There's abnormal. not many things that do that. And that, that's the thing. I mean, for the report, these things are fraught with peril, right? That's when we hand over a patient, when we transfer care in any transfer, particularly when you don't get to actually speak to the original historian who is the wife and the original medic that took care of the patient, it's just fraught with peril. Every time in well-meaning people, right? But every time that we change over a patient to a new team and you get that story, it's fraught with peril that you're getting the exact, you know, the right story. So I think Dr. Patrick very astutely and very brightly went back and said, well, this is still in the differential. It sounds, you know, this abrupt onset sounds really worrisome. And what happened next? So in my mind, I said, I think this is sepsis, number one. So I sent a whole battery of, sure. of lab yeah. work, urine. That, that annoying order set that I can't get through? I don't. I'm anti-order <laughs> set. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, listeners out there. I, I, I have. Hopefully a a, we don't have any... Uh, of our hospital colleagues watching this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm anti-order set. But anyways, in my own way, I ordered an infectious package, chest x-ray, urine, lactic acid, cultures, metabolic panel, the usual there. And I said in my mind, you know, stroke still in my, I could hear Dr. Dixon in my mind saying, if they're normal and then they're not, vascular occlusion has to be on your list. And he's going to go over for non-contrast head CT anyways. That's a standard part of this workup. It's been in my checklist checkbox for an altered mental status, unknown, found down situation since 2004 when I started ordering these these workups. The non-contrast head CT has always been there. But as I was clicking my orders in my archaic electronic medical record system that I was using, I said, you know, I'm going to throw on a CTA of the head and the neck. This was abrupt. This could be a large vessel occlusion. And I also had in the back of my mind, this could be non-convulsive status. So my concern was really, if I don't see a cause in one or two, I'm probably going to move on to non-convulsive status and even to consider meningitis and a spinal tap. That was on down my sure. list of if I don't see a you gotta, cause. You got to keep looking. Yeah, I'm going to have to keep looking here. This this is a very sick gentleman. I'm going to turn over every single stone that I can. So labs started trickling back in. There's nothing too exciting that I found. You know, there was I did a little VIN adjustment on the ABG, and the phone rings about 40 minutes later, 30 minutes later, and it's the radiologist, and he said, "Hey, do you have Mr. X?" And I said, "Yeah, he's got a dense M1 lesion." And the good thing that I did get from the medic crew was he was normal and then he was abnormal at this exact time. So I did get, most importantly, a last known well. And so with your neuro exam in an altered patient, last known well really is a vital sign. It is. And absolutely I, and I got sign. it and I looked at my watch and I said, oh, we're at two hours and winner, 45 winner. minutes. <laughs> so we were inside the window for both TPA and endovascular retrieval. So I made a couple quick phone calls to initiate TN case and to our uh, neurointerventionalist to initiate 
into vascular retrieval, and this gentleman uh, received both. When I walked back into the room to rally the nurses and say, hey, this is a stroke, actually. This is a large vessel occlusion, M1 lesion. We need TNK. We need to get things ready for IR. Uh, the companion, which I assume was, was his wife, um, but there was, a, there was some family um, a companion there. And the story that I got was really just that, that he was acutely normal and then really almost just fell out. Uh, there was no real report of facial droop or slurred speech or you know unilateral motor findings. So it was a pretty surprising case. But if you think about how it was a very proximal M1, so it was you know almost an entire hemisphere that was out. So that presented as just global altermentation, global abrupt altermentation. And so he received both therapies, older gentleman, very dense stroke, uh, outcome not looking great at this point. I've not followed up with the, with the final outcome yet, but it really brought into play how our stroke push here at MCHD and our movement to looking at LAM score and throwing out the time window for these folks and saying, you know, with Dawn and Diffuse that 24 hours, even 24 hours plus, you can still have salvageable brain, you know, and the amazing number needed to treat for endovascular therapy in that three range, which is pretty insane when you think about it. Insanely good. This case and my care for this case was directly impacted by my involvement as an EMS medical director here because I said, you know, eh, he's normal and then he was abnormal. Let's get a CTA. And then we found it. And I thought to myself, you know, in 2015, I wouldn't have ordered a CTA. I would order a non-contrast CT scan. It would have been negative. I would have not found anything impactful on the rest of my lab work because all that would have been relatively normal for an ICU patient. I probably would have done a spinal tap, which would have been useless, and then put him in the ICU and he would have herniated it about 48 hours after his brain had become grossly edematous and they would have found changes of edema, maybe gotten an MRI or some other testing at 24 or 48 hours and found the, the stroke in a subacute phase. But I would have never found that. So pretty, pretty amazing to think about how the, the trickle-down effects of our stroke system of care here has affected. We've seen so many of our patients in our SAVE reunions and in all the ways that we see these stroke patients. And then I think it affects my practice in the ED as well. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's neat to, to watch and work with the resident physicians and how it's really translated in this county 100 percent and i would imagine in the country there's been a big push in the country now, you're exactly right casey it wasn't like that when we came here uh but over the years and over time the hospital systems the training systems the physicians our practice which we were hard dialed right we talk all the time about your practice pattern is your practice pattern it's very difficult to get into a new practice pattern and so that takes time. How much time? I, I see it now very, very commonly in hospitals that a CT, CTA is almost always ordered together, whereas before it's not. Now, is that in every hospital system? It's not. There's still a lot of clinicians out there in smaller systems, um, more remote systems that may be practicing the old way and, you know, potentially this would have been missed. Uh, but this this is, a it's, it's you know, now becoming thank goodness, standard of care in the emergency department to order these things. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that you can absolutely overorder CT angiography of the head and neck. You can overorder. And this was a patient who had abrupt, significant neuro exam and neurovascular changes that were obvious. And I don't think that's the patient who we're overordering on. Every single patient who has tingling in their 
fingers and <laughs> uh, you know numbness in the left pinky toe for the last two months probably doesn't need CT angiography, CT angiography of the head and the neck. So please don't misunderstand me. Uh, I am definitely resource utilization sensitive and and uh, imaging appropriate conscious in my own practice. Agreed. But this is a patient even with those things considered and I consider myself a, a thoughtful uh, clinician. I would not have ordered this battery of tests four or five years ago in the ED in my own practice. So yeah, great case. Pr pretty cool case. So let's take it home with some with some take home points for everybody. The chain of survival requires all link to be strong and out of hospital cardiac arrest, especially, especially most importantly in refractory VF. And in our case number one, we had bystander CPR, we had yeah. telecommunicator. Uh, assisted CPR, we had FROs with early defibrillation and AEDs, high quality pit crew CPR from uh, our MCHD crew, ACLS in place, amiodarone, Esmolol, dual sequential defibrillation, and ROSC, and then hospital system coming through with top-notch cardiovascular care and intensive care unit interventions uh, to get a patient back home with a lot of life years left pretty really, amazing really neat case if you're not doing ap pad placement out there guys consider doing ap pad placement we got the question in ce today i just kind of entered my brain what about for pacing i'd absolutely use it for pacing too you're catching more of the important myocardium uh, don't forget dual sequential defibrillation is an option in these in these refractory vf patients have a look at the show notes and casey will post the dose df uh, New England Journal article there. It's a good read. And even if you are uh, a BLS service, even if you are uh, cash-strapped cash and budget-limited, we're all pretty cash-strapped and budget-limited these days. Costs nothing. Costs nothing to place your, place your pads, AP. So to me, that's it's really a no-brainer at this point. If you've got an acutely altered patient, even us in our own practice, we go back to Zero the altered mental status, serial killers, seizure, toxins, infections, endocrine and stroke and while stroke sometimes is b fast if you're abruptly normal to abruptly abnormal no matter how that presents vascular occlusion has to be on your list and thankfully in this situation uh, we found it lastly not least for sure when you're taking care of patients in the pre-hospital setting especially when you're transferring to another ems crew if it's a neuro patient the last known well is a vital sign and that absolutely plays a role in what treatments we can and should and should not implement in the ED. So you don't have to have a perfect exam. You don't have to have a perfect history, but to know, hey, what time was the last time you knew, sir, ma'am, your wife, your husband, your brother, to be normal? And that is one that should, should travel through those transfers of care because in this situation, it made a big difference and our ability to care for this gentleman and to give him every possible chance for a good recovery. So as always, if you have ideas for future podcasts, feedback, criticism, kudos, send them our way, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like, leave us a review wherever you watch or listen. We appreciate it. I love getting uh, YouTube comments and sending those replies back. Those are, I send those replies back. So I appreciate all the feedback and all the, the kind words that we get from y'all. It makes doing this 
that much more rewarding. So thank you all for listening. As always, we'll be back with a new episode again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.